0: This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 94. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at s-n-n-wire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Adam Wilk, portfolio manager at Greystone Capital Management and editor of Pound the Rock Investing Investor Blog. I reached out to Adam after reading his blog post and I quote, basketball and investing, a match made in heaven, end quote. And this is where he documents his experience working for the San Antonio Spurs. In the post, and you will soon hear his time working with the Spurs and general manager, R.C. Buford, yielded lessons that he was able to incorporate into his passion for investing. Adam's blog, Pound the Rock Investing, is even inspired by the Stonecutter's credo, a quote made famous by Jacob Rees, and is at the core of the Spurs culture. I'm a huge sports fan and love when investing podcasts bring on people who have worked in the sports world. There are just so many parallels, and if you're a fan like me, you'll enjoy my upcoming chat with Adam. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 94, and please enjoy my interview with Adam Wilk. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. As some of you may know, when I'm not interviewing folks for the podcast, I also host CEO video interviews and Wall Street views with investing experts for SNN's YouTube channel, SNN Network. I wanted to take a moment to invite you all to subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel. As a subscriber, you'll be the first to be notified when we publish a new CEO video interview with microcap management teams, a new Wall Street View video interview with investing experts, panels and keynote presentations from our conferences, as well as new and archived podcast interviews. Go to www.nnnetwork.com youtube.com backslash SNN wire and click the subscribe button. Again, that's www.youtube.com backslash SNN wire and click subscribe. Thank you for subscribing and for your continued support. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I would like to welcome Adam Wilk, portfolio manager at Greystone Capital Management and editor at Pound the Rock Investing Investor Blog. Adam, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast.
1: You got it. It's my pleasure. Big fan of the show, and um, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you.
0: Awesome, man. and and again, thanks for your your fanmanship and uh, and for for taking the time today. So, uh, as you know, how we start with every episode, let's uh, let's get your background. How'd you get your start in the world of finance, and uh, to then founding Greystone Capital Management.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I wish I was one of those people who had some formative experience in their youth that kind of caused them to gravitate toward the stock market or investing, uh, like being in a grocery store with your mom as a kid and wondering how much money companies made or what their margins were on their products that you're looking at or something like that. But uh that's just not really how it went for me. And I think there had always been an interest in investing based on some of the things that my dad was doing in real estate um, when I was younger, and my uncles as well, um, as well as the idea that it, it kind of seemed interesting and important to me, the concept of trying to own something that produced cash for you or maybe appreciated in value. And I was always careful with money and a diligent saver, but never really knew what to do with my disposable income until a little bit later on in life, and I certainly wasn't one of those kids who was buying their first stock at age 11 or anything like that. Um, But when I was working in basketball, early on in my career, I had the privilege of working for an incredibly talented manager in San Antonio when I was with the Spurs, who could have uh, really done anything given his uh, management ability, but uh, from whom I learned more than any other person I've been around in a professional setting. And I kind of saw firsthand how a talented manager can really make a huge impact on the trajectory of a business and an organization. Um, So it was kind of made clear to me at that point that it takes an incredible amount of effort to sort of make an organization go and as well as really talented people. Um, and as sort of, as a side note, I have a really incredible amount of respect and and empathy for management teams who can, you know, grow their sales and earn even $1 of profit or increase their per share business value. Um, sometimes, you know, starting from nothing, just an incredibly difficult thing to do. But, um, so that kind of piqued my interest, just in terms of what it takes to run a company or a business. And my, but my actual foray into value investing began with a book, actually, and it was called uh, Rule Number One Investing. And uh, it was written by a guy named Phil Town, who's a hedge fund manager and, a, and an author and a speaker. And um, it was published in like the early 2000s. And um, I, I think what had set out to sort of be my aim of finding like a primer on stocks and investing turned out to sort of become a multi-year obsession with value investing. And I think the purchase of that single book uh, took me down a path that I never thought I'd be on uh, at the time I bought it. Um, You know, if you, I don't know if you've ever just read something or come across a piece of material where, where just the light bulb goes off for you. And, um, that kind of, that's kind of what happened with me. And in the book he talks a lot about Buffett and Munger, and sort of how his investing style was modeled after their teachings, and uh, so then like you know any idiot who doesn't know anything, I was led to to Warren Buffett and his letters and biographies and sort of devoured everything I could get my hands on relating to his life and career. So that kind of led me further down the path of basically reading all the investing classics like you know The Intelligent Investor, uh, One Up on Wall Street, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, and a million other books. And then I actually got into studying businesses and reading about different industries and getting familiar with the different players in the game, like fund managers and diving into their letters and taught myself accounting sort of basically from the ground up and kind of went down this, um, multi-year path, which is very much, very much still in place today in terms of learning, Mm -hmm. um, as much as I could about everything investing related. So I guess after that period, I, I was investing some of my disposable income, and I was working in basketball, like I mentioned, and I was able to beat the market over a period of years. Um, at which time, I have no idea whether that was was luck or skill—probably luck. Um, but during that time, I also kind of learned the parallels between what I was doing in the NBA in terms of basketball operations and investment management. And after leaving the sports world, I kind of decided, you know, I want to give this finance thing a shot, and Sort of attempt to make it a career for myself, and uh, my background is obviously non-traditional, and I, I kind of lack the educational pedigree or certifications that maybe analysts have or people who go out and start their own shops. So at first, I kind of had limited options in terms of looking for a job, and I kind of made it my mission, I guess, um, over the you know the next five to seven years to try to sharpen the sword as much as I could, just in terms of my skill set, and I guess learn everything I possibly could about business and economics and accounting, et cetera. Um, but the cool part about that process was, I guess, basically what I learned through all of that is the more I I read and the more I learned about the industry and the business and about investing, the more I figured out I was pretty enamored by the subject and and still am for sure. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of made it my aim to build this Greystone partnership, um, from the ground up and starting with friends and family money. Um, and it's really been kind of like a labor of love and, Sort of marries my passion for the business and activity of investing with my desire to kind of be on my own and and now I'm at the point you know I spend most of my my waking hours kind of thinking about stocks and businesses so it's it's definitely become a real passion.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because of your non-traditional background.
1: I oh, mean, nice. That, that's what's
0: that that what's funny is that more so in microcaps, or maybe that's just because I do mostly uh, interviews with people who focus on small micro and nano caps. Yeah, uh, is that it is usually people are coming from a non-traditional background. I mean, it's funny when you said, like, I don't have that, like, that story uh, of going into the grocery store <laughs> and seeing yeah. that company. But, you know, I think, I actually think that's pretty common. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you had a friend or you had some family member that invested in the stock market. And next thing you know, you're, you're reading one up on Wall Street and saying, "Why the heck are you looking at at small, micro, nano caps? What's wrong with you?" You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you're here. Yeah,
1: I think <laughs> I think it's actually interesting, just to your point, that because I had been on sort of a different path than someone focusing full time on finance or invest and investing, or somebody with an MBA. Um, no, no disrespect to anybody with a high level of education. Never a bad thing. But I sort of sort of ended up entering the field. with a a really open mind and um, I guess no bad habits to unlearn. So it was really beneficial for me to kind of absorb the important relevant info right off the bat, which came from some of the, you know, great investors out there, Buffett, Munger, Greenblatt, Phil Fisher, et cetera, um, and was kind of able to dive into this thing by evaluating, learning how to evaluate businesses and not stocks or focusing any of my time on kind of the business school jargon or you know any any of the Greek letters that they throw throw around at you. So, um, being able to just kind of dive into that that aspect of it and learn and understand how to value a business was really helpful to me, kind of early on.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what's fun is that because uh, you I guess you would obviously classify yourself as a value investor, and, right. uh, and and I and I just did an interview the other day where I made the joke, and you know there's a little level of truth to that is that. Even though there, you could put a hundred value investors in a room, there's a good chance that there still might be 200 different ideas, potentially. <laughs> yeah. you know so for, yeah. so so for me, you know what's fun about our podcast is is digging into you know some of what shaped you as the type of value investor that you are. So with that, I'm doing a hard transition, as they call in the biz. And uh, and uh, I want to talk about your experience working with the Spurs. And and I will say this, as much as I hate to admit this as a Knicks fan, uh, you really couldn't have found a better place to work in basketball than the San Antonio Spurs. You know what? What would you you mentioned this a little bit in your opening, but let's dive a little deeper. You know what? What did you learn there that you would say set you up for the path you're on today?
1: Wow. Yeah, that's uh, an unbelievably loaded question for sure. Um, But I I will, I have to say this first with the Knicks. Every year you guys, well, every year there are big name free agents. You guys always tease out the big names and there's all these scenarios put forward and you never end up with any of them. So I actually feel for you as a Knicks fan. And it happened once again this summer, obviously with KD and Kyrie going to Brooklyn, which may even make it hurt worse. But well, I that, feel for you.
0: I'll say to that point, I think, because we both listen to Bill Simmons podcast, like he made a great point, I think. Sorry, this is totally different than our, our normal uh, pro- schedule programming. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but he made a good point that I think the pitch that Brooklyn made was way smarter than what the Knicks did. And I I think they actually did a good job, you know, in the sense that, look, we're gonna to package together not just playing in New York and being in Brooklyn. Let's bring in all the titans of industry, you know, Alibaba, uh, Rock Nation. You know, let's let's package this all around. Look, you come to play for the Nets, this is where you set up shop, and then you can do all of your various other business ventures around that. You know, that's all right here. See the Knicks, it was just Dolan being like, Come play for the Knicks because you get to play at MSG. You know, it's not so much the <laughs> right i mean that's how i mean simmons made that point that's not an original thing take that i said but I, I 100% agreed with it
1: you you make a really good point and i think that's a big pitch with these guys now uh, obviously because they have so much money and there's a lot of business opportunities that open up to them but because that's just part of the you know net, with every team being able to offer a similar amount in terms of salary you know you have to find a way to differentiate yourself i guess and i think you know in oakland when he was with golden state You know, you have the whole like, let's get you involved in the tech scene. And I think now Fady has like a bunch of tech investments or venture investments that he's a part of. And who knows how deep they dive into it, but it's part of the pitch for sure. So you're right. I think Brooklyn hit that, hit that right on the head. But I, it's funny, I actually used to work with uh, Sean Marks, who was in San Antonio when I was, and he is, uh, he's a stud for sure. So I, I am not surprised one bit that he was able to get this done.
0: Well, my one question because I was when I was doing my research for the interview, I was trying to line up the years, and I didn't. I were you, did you come in just after they drafted Kawhi, or was it, or were you just?
1: Before? Yeah, it was the year after.
0: The year after. Oh, okay, I mean.
1: Yeah, so it was his second year.
0: Because mm-hmm. I well, we're gonna get more into that when we talk about you know player player uh, evaluation and 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 yeah, yeah uh, sure. and management, but. You know, going back to our <laughs> our original question. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and and we can take it uh, you know, uh point by point. But you know, what what would you say were some of those things that you did learn in your, during that experience? And and please, I'm sure my audience would love to hear as many anecdotes as you possibly have.
1: Yeah, sure. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I you know, we could probably do an entire episode on just that stuff by itself. Um you know, the short answer is that I learned things I continue to use to this day and was really impacted in an incredibly positive way by my experience there. Um, you know, the longer answer is I, I think that the culture there, as well as I'll call it the the Spurs motto of pounding the rock, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more, uh, sort of helped me develop a, a huge amount of perspective about how long it takes to achieve something significant. And really help develop the understanding and a sense that it takes just an incredible amount of time to do anything worthwhile. Now, when you think about investing in compound interest, I mean, can you imagine a more applicable idea or philosophy than that, which I think just applies to compound interest in a humongous way? And um, again, like I said, something I, I really refer to on a daily basis, but I didn't really put that those two things together until a little bit later on. Um, but obviously, now, you know, it, it's no secret that in order to be a successful active manager or a stock picker, one has to develop a continuous learning mindset, or uh, as Charlie Munger would call it, you know, becoming a learning machine. And there's your first obligatory Buffett and Munger reference of the podcast. <laughs> Um, Yeah, but, uh, you know, some people, you know, you can refer to this as as like the snowball effect, which Buffett coined as well, um, and is the title of one of his biographies, uh, meaning that the idea that small bits of constant learning and development can really have outsized positive effects over time. And like I mentioned, while this concept is pretty well known in the value investing world as it relates to compounding, I think that it should also be appreciated as it relates to personal development as well. And I learned a lot about this while I was there um, with their players and how they treat their staff and kind of my experience, uh, you know, personally as well. And, you know, it's also no secret that in order to improve anything at anything, you need to practice that's common sense. But I think a lot of times uh, time constraints and maybe the potential frustration that comes with slow progress is really enough to stop people from many people from attempting at all. Uh, even though small amounts of effort can really have a significant impact over time. And, um, you know, maybe the rate will be faster for a beginner and, you know, slow for somebody who's already grasped something like, you know, knowing how to play in the NBA or, you know, an expert investor. But it's kind of been my philosophy to remind myself that the power of consistent gradual improvement, or as they would call it, pounding the rock is really enormous. And it was this sort of pound the rock approach to learning and to life is uh, really the driving force behind, you know, any small daily incremental efforts that I undertake and part of why I'm excited to get out of bed in the morning and why I continually strive to seek new information about companies and industries and learn more about investing. And it's also why I think it's important to sort of broaden your horizons um, in other disciplines and fields. You know, investors are familiar with the mental model aspect of things. I'm not a huge you know, mental model guy. But obviously, having a broad swath of levers to pull when searching for answers or doing analysis and a business or something can really prove beneficial in ways that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect. And, you know, just kind of seems like a smart way to approach things. But um, so yeah, I kind of hold dear the philosophy that small days of improvement eventually combine to form meaningful progress. And we all have kind of physical or tangible examples of this, you know, you can, Hold a stock that was flat for a few years, and then all of a sudden you get that hockey stick-like growth, maybe because of the investments they made prior um, to you know that that the stock taking off, where it depressed short-term earnings or made the company look bad or something along those lines. Um, but I think you know to those with, sort of with patience and long-term time horizon, which is really what the essence of what I learned there, the essence of what an investor probably should be, and you know really sort of the bedrock of their culture. Um, again, sort of the effects of modest but consistent effort can really be tremendous over time. So as that relates to Greystone and myself, I guess, and what I learned there and kind of how I use that, um, the goal really has been to try to position myself to be able to take advantage of those effects, I guess, and we'll try to continue going forward. And I think The interesting thing about investing, you know, unlike being a professional athlete where your body will eventually lose out to father time, it happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, Investing is really a practice where one can hopefully improve with experience and as time goes on and as knowledge compounds, you know, an investor should be able to kind of more clearly see patterns, analyze situations and make better decisions, kind of using the past as a guidepost. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the last thing is there's, there's always something we, something to be doing in equity research, whether it's reading or learning or thinking or studying different industries or talking to people. So, um, you know, that's part of the just daily hammer away at it kind of thing. And that's really uh, above everything that that was the biggest lesson that I took from there.
0: I'm curious as to, was there an experience like an aha moment or maybe it wasn't aha, but some sort of moment when you were, while you were working at the Spurs that you really saw the clear parallels between what you were doing there and and some learning lessons you gathered from that that you could then take to what you were doing uh, on the investing side. You know, do you, do you, can you recall any experiences like that that you're like, wow, that was that's an interesting way in which that you know my boss looked at that or, or decided to uh, go about doing it this way versus some other way. You know. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, so I think obviously um, you know we just talked about the the team philosophy and, right. and kind of their motto and how what they sort of live by and how the culture was formed but really getting there as a new employee or new person and kind of getting to breathe in the culture a little bit and understand that this was like a two decade run of success that they've had without missing the playoffs and with five champ- four championships and um kind of seeing that uh, up close you kind of get a sense of like this thing started way before I got here and it started when I you know was just a uh a, a sitting in my diaper and um it, you kind of get a you just get a feel of that this whole thing that they've crafted with the same coach and GM combo that's still in place and Tim Duncan was still there when I was there um that it just took an incredibly long time to build and Um, the way that teams talk about the Spurs and uh, how the league reveres them and their reputation, uh, you just got the sense that it wasn't something that happened overnight. So that really stuck with me. And then, you know, this is less of a long-term sort of thing, because obviously a season, uh, NBA season is only, you know, about nine months or so. But we, whenever we were in town, the scouts and the basketball operations people, we always made it a point to watch every practice because we wanted to just get a feel for the team and get a pulse for what was happening, you know, with our actual group and how the, the team was progressing. And it, we were, or I shouldn't say we, but the team was very good when I was there. So things were going well that season and I think they were one or two in the West or something like that. But at the very beginning of the year, in the first practices in which I sat, uh, you got you got to witness Pop, the Coach Pop, kind of putting in some uh, drills or systems or implementing some things that he would go on to repeat for the entire season and they could have been how you take care of the basketball they were things like uh, how to run a certain play they were about you know the spurs motion offense and how it should look in like its best and completed form and this was all started like very early on in the year the kind of core group was there of tony parker tim duncan and Manu ginobili but they also had to integrate some new players, and Kawhi was obviously coming up as a new young guy. So you kind of have a new team in the beginning of every season. And then I can fast forward to the end of the year, and I sat in on a practice uh, during, I believe, the first game of the NBA Finals. Um, the team was home in San Antonio, and uh, they, looked, they just looked really crisp. And um, everything was flowing. The offense was looking good. Nobody was missing a beat with where they were supposed to be or what they were supposed to do. And uh i just remember thinking to myself like this is what the entire year was about that every day from the first day i got there was like chipping away at this thing little by little yeah. and all of a sudden you come to this almost finished product now obviously they didn't win the finals that year so i guess um i guess you can have your reservations about how finished it was but the idea is that i remember a, a point where pop stopped the practice and kind of like reiterated the things that he was saying in the very first practice during the summer when I got there. So that experience kind of, I mean, I remember the gym was dead quiet and I just remember thinking to myself that this is kind of how this stuff gets done. It's not overnight. You don't just sign some good players and then the team is good. Although that certainly can happen in some situations. (laughs) Um, You don't, you don't just integrate a new offense and you, you've got it. It's like everyone does their little job And pounds away at this thing every day until you have something crisp and clean and ready to go. And um, I I, I carry that. I tell that story a lot, actually, and I carry that with me because it was just a really nice example of Mm -hmm. sort of delaying gratification and putting aside, you know, uh, thinking about a long-term goal and putting aside everything else to kind of achieve that, and then seeing it, seeing sort of the culmination of that at the end.
0: Right. Well, it's what what it sounds like is that it was all about incremental growth with them you know because that got it. like as as long as you keep like you keep saying you keep chipping away you know eventually it'll never be perfect but it'll get close which is important
1: you got it and they got you know as close i think they lost in like game six of the finals yeah, that, that was the
0: ray allen shot right or game seven yeah yeah no.
1: yeah so they did they came close but that was a pretty cool thing to watch yeah hey
0: by the way i gotta ask did you, have you memorized the the spurs motto do you still remember it
1: <laughs> i uh I probably should have it memorized uh off the top of my head. I, I know what it starts with and what it ends with, but I'd probably mess up the in between. Um but it's definitely one of those things that I, I refer back to often, but no, I don't I don't have it memorized. But actually the interesting thing about that quote, um, you know, every like I just mentioned, everyone from the security guys to the interns to the front office staff sort of lived and breathed that motto every single day. And it was the first thing they showed me when I flew to Texas to interview for the job. And it was the first thing they reminded me of when I showed up for my first day of work. And obviously the quote has now come to embody a lot of the stuff I just explained, but, um, you know, the, and it's now the picture of the, the quote hangs above a case in the team's practice facility with a rock and a sledgehammer inside to kind of give a tangible example of pounding the rock, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it now serves as sort of the picture uh, at the top of my blog, which I was able to find somewhere on the internet, which I thought was cool. So <laughs> but, uh, it's definitely definitely woven into the structure of that place.
0: That's a perfect transition, you know, because uh, now I want to get into, you know, your strategy and all all the learning lessons and everything that all the experiences, you know, now brought you to this point. So, you know, what what would you say then is your investing strategy and how do you use that to identify a potential new investment.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, one of the interesting things about investing is that there aren't really any new concepts anymore, just kind of old concepts regurgitated or revised. So I would I would give a caveat and say what I'm about to say is probably going to come off as common sense to a lot of your listeners and uh, you know, surely there'll be things that everyone has heard before, so don't expect to hear anything particularly mind-blowing. Or insightful, but um, but yeah. So I guess in my early investing days, my mission was to find and buy cheap stocks, right? So obsessed with short-term returns or quantitative factors, and never paying above a fixed price. Let, let's call it, you know, fifteen times earnings or ten times EBITDA or something like that for anything. And I, I would actually say that's probably true for a lot of value early value investors. Um, you know, we equate value with cheap. I, I know I was definitely anchored to that idea, but um, I sort of view that mentality now as hurtful to performance, uh, given that I was almost ignoring the future prospects of a of a business and was paying much more attention to the price paid and much less attention to the characteristics that make up what makes a quality business, such as high returns on invested capital, uh, having a long runway for growth, dominant market position, uh, cash flow generation and, and a solid management team um, but uh, thankfully I'm a fast learner I guess um, and it wasn't too long ago that I probably shifted away from deep value investing or sort of the getting excited to buy super cheap assets and just sitting on them for years waiting for the market to catch up kind of thing to more of a you know like to get a great price but also a, a reasonably good or great company as well and You know, there are differences, of course, um, between that approach, which I guess some would call like a Buffett style, uh, where we don't have complete control over the companies. And so I think it's important within that to kind of have a path, visible path to upside and maybe a catalyst in place to realize that upside. Um, So for me at Greystone, I I run a pretty concentrated portfolio. Um, Obviously, I'm trafficking in the small and micro cap space and the portfolio split between what I'll call, I guess, core positions, which make up anywhere from eight to 20 or 25% of the portfolio. Uh, The higher position size, 20, 25% is is very, very rare. Um, And then a group of smaller positions that I guess can be described as special situations. um, And those probably range from three to 5% positions and usually have some sort of catalyst in place where I'm a little less concerned with the quality of the business, but probably have some downside protection and maybe see something that can lead to some value creation in the near future, uh, which I'll I'll dive into more in a second. Um, But today, you know, I I can definitely place myself in the bucket, like you mentioned, of a long-only concentrated value investor. And I really just utilize a bottom-up fundamental research process, and I'm really looking for a small group of companies in that nano, micro, small-cap space. So I definitely run a pretty plain, vanilla boring portfolio. Uh, I don't use leverage, no hedging, no options, but, um, that, that definitely helps me sleep at night for sure. Um, but in terms of the actual strategy, I'll try to keep it pretty simple. Um, it, it's pretty, pretty much to do nothing most of the time. Uh, so how's that for insight? Um, <laughs> this is the type of stuff that your listeners tune into for sure.
0: Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, no, they like, they, uh, wait, you can do nothing and make money. That sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, I know, right? Um, so yeah, so I spend the majority of each quarter, pretty much reading, doing research. And when a good opportunity presents itself, I'll take a business through a pretty intensive research process, after which it, it may become, you know, an addition to the portfolio, or it will be placed on a watch list. And I'll kind of continue to monitor the situation and the price. Um, so it's pretty boring stuff. Most days, I'm I'm not buying or selling anything, probably 95% of the time and try to have pretty low portfolio turnover overall. Um, I'm I'm probably looking for like one or two new ideas per quarter. Um, and so I guess to, to execute that and to get into a, a little bit, um, some more specifics, um, what I'm tr- really trying to do is buy shares and what I describe as misunderstood businesses at favorable prices. And what I mean by misunderstood It could be a business that's going through some temporary issues or setbacks that can be resolved by a management team that's incentivized properly or a business making income statement investments for the long term that maybe makes short term earnings or cash flows look bad. It could be a business with a fast growing product or service line that's maybe being masked by a poor legacy business or slower, slow growing legacy business um, or just a business that isn't being followed widely or where the shares are liquid where larger market participants haven't taken the time to analyze the business or the unit economics, those are all, those are all pretty favorable situations um, that I've found in microcap companies and just in new additions to the portfolio. And um, in addition to that, I, I look for characteristics like underappreciated growth. I love to see aligned management teams who own a good chunk of the equity, uh, high insider ownership, uh, balance sheet is really important you want to have a, a solid or clean balance sheet and a competitive advantage that's maybe widening over time um, you know a lot of people talk about moats and having durable competitive advantages and that's really important and all of that is great but I am the more I learn the more I am of the idea that um, moats are talked about much more than they actually exist and but but what huh. you can do is find a business that's growing one as they open each additional new store or as they sign up uh you know each additional customer at a favorable lifetime value or if they uh make an acquisition that puts them ahead of their competition or something that as they conduct their business activities and the unit economics improve their their uh competitive advantage or market share kind of widens over the people who are trying or the companies that are trying to catch up to them so um I really like to see that and um, you know, within that, I try to focus on a pretty simple business model, maybe a, a niche product or service category. Um, and really it's just about keeping it simple. Um, I, it's really, I, I like to see a high, really high customer value proposition where, um, you know, it'd be tough to cut that company or business or product or service out of your life. And, um, then, you know, finally, I guess with valuation, we all want to see the high free cash flow yields or, or maybe like a path to it. Um, there are times when I've invested in unprofitable businesses and, but you can kind of see a path to where as things improve or as they, they turn things around or as management executes, there's a, there's a path to a pretty robust cash flow generation. Right. Um, and then in terms of the size of the companies, I really like to operate in the small and micro cap space for a lot of reasons, but mostly because, Large companies, as we all know, have characteristics that are really high quality, you know, very good ones, and plenty of analyst coverage. That outside of a market downturn or something, make them really difficult to find and purchase at favorable prices. And I learned that pretty early on. Um, some investors would certainly disagree with me, as you know, the, the prices of big companies can certainly fluctuate throughout the year. Um, but it, it's my it's my opinion that you know while this is true. I think less size, smaller size, and sort of the illiquidity of small companies and microcaps make it so that those value disparities can be much greater. And the reason for that is there just aren't as many people looking at the opportunities. So I found it to pre- be a pretty interesting pond in which to fish. So um, going through that whole process and getting through the idea, idea generation side, I think when it's determined that you know a business can be purchased at a favorable price, which really consists of, you know, the whole deal of estimating the future cash flows, um, you know, looking at the asset value, doing a, a ton of scuttlebutt, um, you know, making sure I really understand the business, being able to write it up in a simple and concise way, and, uh, you know, kind of taking it through my research process. I will usually take a pretty concentrated position, depending on the, the type of company, whether it's one of those special situations or one of a potential core holding. And... Um, depending on the risk reward profile and level of conviction. And then, you know, usually if something's going to become a 10% plus position, I I usually will kind of wait in, maybe start with six to 8% as I get more familiar with the business and then average up, which I've kind of learned over the years to not be afraid of doing. Um, But, you know, this process has really provided me with sort of a systematic way to, I guess the real key is eliminate most investment ideas. Um, I say no a lot. And Really try to focus on areas that I feel I can understand where you know you can reasonably judge the risk reward.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what would you say? By the way, that was very comprehensive. You know, you, uh, what what would you say is your 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 main difference? Like, if you had to find some difference in your process, then let's say another value investor, you know, what what would you say that is? Is it in your research process? Is it, it this idea that you know, it's it, people talk about moats a lot, and there's not that many of of them really that are out there. You know, what what would you say is your main differentiation that has led to some of your better successes?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, just looking at sort of some of the success I've had in the portfolio or with individual businesses, I think, um, and and I guess measured against uh, what d- measured against the type of research I'm doing uh, week to week or month to month. I think that being able to say no to most things is really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I'll add a caveat in there. A, I don't believe most managers can do that. And B, uh, I am managing such a small amount of money and um, have that luxury. So we'll see what happens as as things scale. Um, And, you know, people obviously pay for managers to invest their money, not to kind of sit on the sidelines. But um, I've learned enough lessons, I think, to kind of, Um, be picky, be really, you know, pick and choose what I'm interested in and be be really selective. But um, that's a tough question to answer. You know, I think I'm not afraid to be really concentrated when a good opportunity presents itself. I'm not afraid to wait um, for something good to come along and be patient. I'm not afraid to say no to a lot of things. Um, There was a time where, you know, I was trafficking in sort of the deep value space and found that it didn't really fit my temperament or personality or investing style given that mm. you kind of constantly had to watch these businesses and they were such low quality and it, the thesis was based on you know maybe somebody coming along and realizing that things aren't as bad as you thought they were or that you know not as bad as others the market thinks they are so um i, I didn't like that and i i kind of wrote about it in my last letter actually um the move away from those sort of things into more if you're going to do the deep value or special situation thing there has to be sort of a reasonable path to a decent IRR within that. So mm-hmm. maybe you have a sort of a crappy business a little bit but you can see a path to growth or management is turning things around or they've cut costs or something along those lines. Um but yeah, I mean patience and concentration and um you know, being a having a luxury to be able to say no to a lot of things is probably really helpful for what I'm trying to do.
0: Cool. So so my next question is that in in microcaps, you know, management evaluation is is almost the same as player evaluation. You know, harkening back to your experience at the Spurs, you know, you're you're really trying to understand if this person is the right individual for the job. You know, would you say are, are, are there any similarities when evaluating a successful microcap management team and looking at a potential star player?
1: Absolutely there are. Yes, 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 of course. Um I that's a great question and I can try to answer that in two ways, I think. Uh, one... Go, do both, sort of,
0: both ways. Go.
1: What's that, I'm sorry?
0: I said answer both ways. We got time.
1: Great, great, great. <laughs> uh, the first one would be, I guess, talking about how talent evaluation relates to management teams as well as basketball players and two, talking about how it relates to specific businesses. So uh, we may have touched on this earlier, but it's all about incentives, incentives, incentives. And that's true in investing. It's even more true in the NBA. And if we can get into it, one of the most important ingredients in understanding how management might behave is making sure that the people who are in charge of making value-creating decisions are properly incentivized to do so, right? We hear that over and over again from investors and letters from Munger, from everybody in our community. And I think sometimes being able to answer the most basic questions such as what is management's motivation to make XYZ event happen or is this person going to get rich if he or she does what's best for the business can really shed some excellent excellent light on figuring out the likelihood of certain events. Now, um, to relate this to the small cap space and micro cap space, management in those situations have usually accumulated a pretty significant amount of wealth. and they might be more concerned with things like ego and reputation than maybe earning a few extra few million bucks. And I found that most management teams of small cap companies are still very much in that um, wealth accumulation stage and are pretty hungry to grow it. That's at least been my experience. And I think a lot of times the characteristics that cause a person to do the right thing or think a certain way are innate. So the tough part is, Determining whether they exist or not and doing that is Not just an exercise and looking at the intangible qualities a person possesses But also looking at their hard skills and digging into their background and references, etc So to relate that to the NBA and talent evaluation I think what starts to outweigh pure talent level with players are the intangible characteristics of the, those same guys so you I learned that you want to really want to be at this is common sense, but you want to be adding guys to your team who have integrity, character and understand sort of the team aspect of things. And this is obviously similar to how we try to select the management of our portfolio companies. So we're not the ones in basketball. I was never the one I was evaluating talent, but I was never the one out there scoring the points. Right. So you can liken that to allocating capital. We can provide the capital, we can buy the shares, we can become part owners, but we're not the ones out there actually doing that. So, we have to make sure that the guys that were behind are going to work hard, sacrifice for their teammates, put the group above their individual statistics. And obviously this doesn't always work out, and like evaluating management teams, it's really difficult to assess, and you can still put together a solid team of players who who lack those traits, you know, if you think about for any NBA fans out there like the jailblazers teams of the early two thousands or um you know the Indiana Pacers in two thousand four where they where they a group of those guys like went into the stands and had that whole malice at the palace or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but when you find a management group that is talented and will kind of sacrifice or let me just put it this way, who's talented and has integrity, you get, you know, a the business version of the San Antonio Spurs, right? So um in addition Digging into both incentives on both the player and the management side, if we can combine these two things, really helps paint a good picture of how hard a guy is going to work, including a manager and a player, and what he's after. Because, you know, believe me, I have no shortage of funny stories of of interviews and things we did when evaluating guys for the draft and talking to players, you know, we wanted to sign or something like that. Uh, Guys will tell you whatever you want to hear to look good in an interview or to get you to try to draft them. And uh, on that same token, I've found that obviously management teams and people in the investing world will will lie to you as well. Um, so understanding someone's track record, their background, attempting to try to uncover sort of what motivates them and digging into references or finding intel as they called it in the NBA is really all a huge piece of the puzzle, uh, as it is with evaluating management teams. And I mean, you know, you can hear as I as I say all this the parallels between the two things. Um, you know, if a player has a history of slacking off, or his former coaches tell you he isn't going to work that hard for you, I'm pretty convinced that money or fame or what, or whatever else he's after isn't going to change his attitude overnight. And that's very similar to a manager with a history of destroying shareholder value. And maybe I'm wrong here. I'm sure there have been outliers, but is money or a new CEO job or, you know, status or something going to change that guy's attitude overnight to where he starts caring about the shareholder? It's probably not likely. So, um, and in addition, you know, just relating these two things again, I, I think meeting with management teams sometimes can be an overlooked area of investing, just like sourcing info from player backgrounds or meeting with them in person is a really overlooked area of talent evaluation. And I know the Spurs were the very first team to sort of foray into Europe and different parts of the globe to try to find talent in the early 2000s, which helped them find Manu Ginobili. And obviously any team could have had him because he went in the back of the second round or something. But the idea was they were the first ones to kind of take that leap and try to think a little bit differently and capture some inefficiencies and now you look at a guy like, um, you know, the Greek freak uh, Giannis who, who plays for Milwaukee and you had every team in the league who was at his little middle school gym in Greece or whenever, you know, he became a thing. So uh, anyway, I digress. But, um, but yeah, so um, that, that's often a pretty overlooked area. And um, I, I've definitely heard about many investors talk about choosing not to visit with management teams or CEOs out of fear of liking that person may create some sort of, I don't know, behavioral bias or um, other sort of bias. Like, I think this was described in a, in a book uh, called The Halo Effect or something, which can sort of be broken down like, I, I like this person, therefore they're also smart and good at allocating capital. Certainly, that's not always true. Um, so, you know, I think that when evaluating talent and management teams, it's very similar in that you've got to build your case for why a particular player should be signed drafted or traded, traded for, just like you need to build a case or an investing thesis for why you want to get behind a certain manager. And the evaluation on both sides is quantitative and qualitative, and I think relies on a number of factors, statistics, numbers, experience, intangibles, uh, video for when watching players, etc. And you often, in the NBA, you often had to present an evaluation to a group, and you know they're supposed to tear you apart, very similar to doing an investment write-up or Presenting it to, you know, uh, at a conference or a group or something like that, you kind of want to hear the opposing views to your thesis. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you really do a lot of the same things when evaluating companies or, excuse me, players and management teams. So there are some huge similarities there.
0: Well, you know, for me, the main takeaway that I take from that answer, because you see it across sports, you know, I mean, from from the Oakland A's to the Spurs to even the Patriot Way, you know. Uh, i mean there 's a reason that Michael Lewis wrote a whole book Moneyball about the oakland a s because here is a, a, a sports franchise or just any type of company working in uh, an industry, and they decided that with the assets that we have, we need to do things differently in order to be successful. you know it seems like that 's really what you what you took from everything you know is that that yet yeah, you know, you you may, you joke about you know, uh, this, you know, going to be kind of hearing some of the similar things and um, value investing whatnot, but I, I think it's a little nuanced from what I'm hearing. You know, is that you you took some of those things, thought about it in a different way, and re-engineered it so that it worked for what your style was to be successful. Am I am I going along the the right path there?
1: I have nothing to add. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think I like I mentioned. I was incredibly lucky to have that experience early on and sort of have my eyes open to the idea of doing things a little bit differently. So um, you know, I think I I kind of have always been someone with a little bit of a contrarian mindset as well and been comfortable with independent thinking, but uh, seeing it up close and being done in a systematic or successful way made a huge imprint on me for sure. You, You hit the nail on the head. Cool.
0: And now I have to ask, give us one draft story uh, of of, uh, something that they said to you that you're like, all right, this guy is completely full of it right now. You don't have to name Uh, names, but you have to. This is too good. (laughs)
1: Um, Man, let me see if I can pick one out. Um, Yeah, I mean – it's hard to kind of pinpoint, of course, like uh, when I want to, when I want to draw on one, I got, I'm I'm drawing a blank here when I'm trying to come up with something funny. Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I can just say just sort of as a broad stroke, you know, you go through these gauntlet style interviews before, during the pre-draft process Mm -hmm. and you will get these college kids in, or, you know, freshmen or whatever, uh, into the room where you basically, it's a panel style interview and you basically, uh, you know, rip them, well, I wouldn't say rip them apart, but you've got an entire staff of NBA guys who have been doing this for 10 plus years who Mm. are great at reading human beings and expert talent evaluators, and they're just going at you with question after question. Well, let me ask you this.
0: Is is it like a different type of questions that you guys ask than maybe some other teams ask to maybe find something about this one player that maybe another team missed?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question too. I think, uh, you know, you know, all of the, the question lists and things that were developed by every team, they are somewhat secretive in the NBA. Like nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to let out, leak the secrets of what they're asking in player interviews or sure. how, to get, how to assess a, a pre-draft guy's character or something. So I can't speak for the other teams, but I would imagine that they're pretty similar. You know, you want to find out about the guy's background. You want to ask him about any disciplinary issues. You want to ask him what his teammates and coaches think of him. You want, to, you want to kind of get him free-flowing. And some teams are better than this at others. Um, I, I will say I I have experience with multiple teams, so the way interviews are conducted from one to the next are certainly different. Some like to make it a real conversation-style sort of thing like we're doing now, and others just kind of pepper a guy with questions. But the funny part is that, that none of them, they're coached up a little bit by their agents before they come in, but none of them really know what to expect. And it, it, you can imagine with... All of the interviews they're doing and all of the questions they're being asked. There, some of the funny stories that float around, or some of the funny responses. Uh, whether it's just straight up honesty, guys, you know, telling you they they smoke or do drugs just to your face, or, or a guy who has a long history of it, or um, his teammate says he does it, or his coaches tell us to watch out, and then we get him in the interview, and all of a sudden he's uh, straight laced, quit smoking, quit drinking, Mister, you know, honor roll guy, and it it's just kind of funny to. To see what Intel we had on a, on a player, I guess before they got in the room, and then how that matched up with their answers, I wish I had like a really funny story, but so you can imagine I guess some of the funny things we saw.
0: Oh I, I mean I, I can only I really can only imagine I mean it's just oh man that's that must what what a freaking experience dude that's so cool. Um, all right, so you know rounding out here what, what would you say in terms of your investing career? was was an experience that that shaped your current investing thesis
1: oh man uh too many to name too many to name um i think uh you know I have a recent one that i I can share that's that's still pretty fresh um oh
0: real quick you know it's funny when money's on the oh, line you, I'll go. when money's on the line, you remember those stories, but the dra- uh, you don't remember the draft one <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. That's funny. I know. I have I have like it's this one's never going to leave me. Um and I'm I'm going to go negative with this question as opposed to positive because I think the bad experiences help stamp the lessons in my mind a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So um go for it. I guess uh for any listeners who have followed me on Twitter or who have read any write-ups or something, this one was made public. Um, I Select Sands Corp, which is a frac sand business. Was an investment i made starting in early 2018 and continuing through the third quarter i think um and i built what amounted to be an eight percent or so position um and uh, i got to spend time with on the with the ceo and the coo in arkansas and chicago arkansas is where they're located and um you know despite the frac sand business being low quality characterized by cyclicality Uh, Severe commodity risk and capital intensity sounds pretty good. Uh, I came away from studying Select with the notion that I'd found a Fraxian business sort of in a different mold. So they were a short operating history, but they were one quarter away from profitability. They had a net cash position, uh, really minimal capex needs and assets that were purchased at opportune times that were worth, I'd say, nearly the entire value of the business. and I was also looking at a cheap stock, I think it was less than three and a half times management's guidance for a uh, full year EBITDA, um, which, which was I think, um, and, and so yeah, so they had accomplished an incredible amount in a short period of time. And I think since commencing their operations, they had grown revenues at a crazy rate, and somewhere around 50 million, and they made really smart capital allocation decisions. Uh, They had a balance sheet that was unlike any of their peers, like I mentioned, and they had a manager who had run a really big division at Martin Marietta, super sharp guy, uh, really had like um, set some interesting long-term goals for the business and was really driven to kind of do his own thing and make this succeed. Um, And then in addition, they had an interesting geographical advantage in terms of shipping their sand to the Permian Basin because they were based in Arkansas. As opposed to wisconsin which is where the majority of northern white sand suppliers are located so this allowed them to ship their sand at a lower cost per ton than their competitors which effectively made them one of the low cost producers and we all know how that works in a commodity related business where um with high fixed cost you know low cost producers are able to in this case ship more product and take market share and and in my view possibly survive any downturns in the price of the commodity or, or any unfavorable economic environment. So to sum that up, I was able to purchase the shares, I think, with an enterprise value of around $25 million, And they had a quarter, the last good quarter they had, they did $3 million in EBITDA, so pretty interesting valuation. And no one was looking at this business. It was a liquid, it's tiny, like I mentioned, $25 million bucks, uh, no, no analyst coverage. Uh, and I kind of felt like I found it before the market had... Um, and you know obviously there are other larger frac sand businesses around and uh, this one was just kind of flying under the radar but Mm. really executing well so all that sounds great right uh sure (laughs) well two (laughs) things destroy that thesis completely that i failed to discount heavily enough number one if you cut the price of sand their main product in half and see how the company moves forward they don't they're pretty much finished and number two if you, if you can say that, what would possibly cause the price of sand to drop by 50%? Well, new, cheaper supply, which is exactly what happened. So following the company's, I think, record quarter or something, um, there's really no reaction to the positive business developments, and management wasn't buying any shares. And they, they, this thing looked so cheap. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is a little strange. That probably should have been a warning sign right there. Um, but then a few weeks later, The pricing environment for frac began to crumble, and the shares dropped more. And it was really, and they also lost one of their biggest uh, customers, which represented like sixty percent of their revenues. I think over a haggling in price, and so it was kind of the perfect storm of events, and the shares got hammered in an incredibly short period of time. It was actually amazing how quickly the value destruction took place. So by the end of the month um, of that Q2, I think, or September or something like that, um, the company then announced that they would be temporarily furloughing their operations, reducing the number of employees. They had a property expansion they were working on that they ceased, which was originally intended to drive sort of the ramp in production. And that that was the last piece of information I needed to make the sell decision. Uh, At that point, the the thesis was completely broken and obviously the story had changed. But to get to the lesson part of it, um, I I probably made the longest entry into my investment journal for this business alone and spent way too much time thinking about it because I was pretty torn up about the mistake. Looking back on it now with obviously the benefit of hindsight. Incredibly easy to say that it was a stupid decision. At the time, I thought I was following my process and you know made, made a good call. but obviously these things don't always work out the way we want, but, um, I'd say the key mistakes I made included not stress testing the investment enough given the risks of that price drop, um, not understanding the industry as well as I thought I did. I obviously spent an extensive amount of time doing research. I put boots on the ground in the facilities. I got to see all their equipment. I talked with industry experts. I read all the reports. But I don't exactly have boots on the ground in you know these Permian and Texas basins where they're apparently at this point, just picking up sand off the ground and using that to frack a lot of the wells, which is, you know, much cheaper. And, you know, that I, I realized all that stuff, but then still made the investment and then compounded my error by making the position size too big. And worst of all, buying more as the price was dropping, which I don't think I know any value investors who haven't been through that, uh, a disaster like that, where they're, they're, I guess, holding a falling knife or catching a falling knife or whatever you want to call it. So I've, um, I've taken plenty of lessons away from that experience for sure. And I actually instituted sort of updated portfolio management rules that tightened the criteria for new investments, uh, tightened the criteria for the types of businesses I'm willing to underwrite. Uh, I, I made rules for adding to positions, as well as for cutting loose faster when the story changes. And I won't go too much in depth on any of that, but just a few highlights. I'm done with commodity businesses. I've been burned too many times. Uh, it, that's over for me. Uh I I don't usually make I don't usually take any large positions in a business without really large insider ownership anymore. Um, and for businesses with a short operating history, this is key. Absolutely have to see a founder CEO or a CEO who owns just a humongous chunk of the shares. Uh, for, in terms of position sizing, no position I, I've broken this rule a little bit, but almost no position gets more than an initial five percent sizing before uh evaluating the operating results and then again like i mentioned earlier it's okay to average up and um so you know while while i think it would have been easy then or or now um uh as emotions ran high back then to kind of proclaim how things will change moving forward or, or say uh, i'm going to do things differently i you know i i guess i'll withhold making any grand statements and just kind of stick with those rules that i implemented and hopefully look forward to updating you on a success in the future uh, lesson uh, using that as a lesson, as opposed to a failure next time around.
0: Well, it seems, you know, look, you, you mo- whenever I usually ask that question, it is usually a negative experience and it leads to, you know, putting some, a couple rules in place. You get a success, then maybe you loosen the strings a little bit because you have a little bit more flexibility. You know, uh, it seems like that's usually it's, it's, I, I mean, it, I don't want to say it's cyclical or it's, it's investment dependent, you know. But you know, from what I've seen and from doing the interviews, it, it seems like that's usually the, the the cycle of it. Or it's it's, or at the very least, it's really just sticking to that n- new knitting now, you know. And you're you're a young enough guy where I'm sure, you know, now this will be probably in place for a while.
1: You got it. And um, yeah, you hit it on the head. I think investing, obviously it's the ultimate decision business. So you really, the aim should be to kind of eliminate those kind of avoidable errors and, you know, continue to make good decisions. But there's also an incredible amount of false positives in investing. I think you can follow your process to a T and make what you think is a good decision given the facts or Mm -hmm. information at the time and the result doesn't turn out well. And you can also uh, make a really bad decision and end up making some money. So Mm -hmm. being able to separate sort of the Process versus outcome-based thinking is really important, but when you think that you followed, it hurts especially. Uh, it hurts pretty bad when you think you follow your process and it doesn't work out well. Obviously, it happens to the best of us, but um, I guess you just you know pick up and move forward. Right.
0: All right. So, Adam, you know, for new investors that are looking at the stock market, you know, it, what are what are some some advice that you have for them?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know I at this stage I'm, I'm probably not in any sort of position to be giving advice. Uh, I'm definitely still very, very much learning myself, and your, your listeners would be better served by, by talking to someone with a real track record. but um, no, I think uh, you know it's no secret that in order to become a successful investor as well as I guess a more well-rounded person, um, you, you definitely want to read everything you can get your hands on. Um, as much as you can each day. And I think as an active manager, you know, we the idea of reading broadly and widely seems to have become stable, table stakes at this point um, in the investment business. I don't think that you can do the job well if you don't have a fierce curiosity to, to consume the right information. Uh, I think the list of quality reading material uh, for investors is robust at this stage. There's just an incredible amount of beneficial information out there. Uh, books trade journals magazines uh, company reports investor letters all those things um, and and I think one of the things that m- makes this time period really great uh, is that many of the most successful accomplished and interesting people in the world actually take the time to share their knowledge through books through podcasts through TV through seminars I mean you you do it uh, you you're, you're literally in the business of Spreading knowledge and, and talking to, to smart people and sharing that with others, um, and I, I think any one of us have the opportunity to seek those people out and sort of apply their teachings to our own lives. I mean, that's literally how my investing career started was by reading some things that some experts wrote and uh, you know applying them to my own life, uh, e- even if only on a smaller scale. Um, so you know, if I had to say something, it's definitely new investors. I guess have to make sure they're they're spending as much time as possible soaking up as much information as possible oh, yeah. with a real focus on studying actual businesses and how they operate. Cool. Um, you know, do things like read as many annual reports as you can, or get really really familiarize yourself with one industry and get become an expert in in that industry, or uh, break down the unit economics of some of your favorite businesses in your life, or you know, products and services that you use or something and start kind of familiarizing yourself with you know how a, a bit an actual business functions day to day but above all I think you know you've got to determine if you're interested in learning if you're curious and if you're willing to dig deep into a business or go into the weeds of an industry um, oftentimes without much in return at first right so mm-hmm. I mentioned doing nothing most of the time and reading spending each quarter reading a lot of times that's without taking any action and I mean, it can be kind of boring. Some famous investor, maybe it was Buffett, compared investing to watching paint dry or something like that. And So if you (laughs) you actually like the activity of doing all that stuff, then you're golden. And I guess you have to figure out if you do.
0: So Adam, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Graystone Capital Management, and Pound the Rock Investing?
1: Uh yeah, so you you I think we mentioned my blog uh, Pound the Rock Investing. That can be found at Pound The Rock Investing, all one word dot WordPress dot com. Uh I have a pretty active presence on Twitter as well under my name, uh Adam Wilk. Uh, uh, definitely reach out to any listeners, please engage with me. I, I love Twitter. It's actually become an invaluable investing tool for research, commentary, and and sourcing ideas. Um and I know I know you know this. But there's an incredible community of investors and finance people on Twitter called Fintwit. And I feel really lucky to be part of that little community um, in a small way. I've really met some great people through that platform and at this point might even benefit from spending less time on there. I think I'm a little bit addicted. <laughs> uh, but my website is under construction right now, uh, graystonevalue.com, where I will be posting some snippets about Greystone as well as my letters when it's finished. But you're you or whoever else more than welcome to reach out anytime for letter samples or to talk ideas or whatever else. Uh, I love connecting with new people and talking about stocks and businesses. My email is adam at graystonevalue.com.
0: Adam, it was an absolute pleasure interviewing you today and uh, I look forward to the next time.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, man.
0: Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast and thank you, Adam, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com. The official MicroCap news source and the MicroCap Review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you guys for joining me on the Planet MicroCap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.